welcome to the New Lines podcast. I'm your host, Rasha Elas, and in this episode, we are joined by Cameron Bukhari, a national security and foreign policy specialist. He's also the director of analytical development at New Lines Institute, the sister organization of New Lines Magazine. He joins us today from his home in Northern Virginia. His essay published in the magazine takes a deep dive into deobandism, uh, which is a major Islamic movement in South Asia that we don't hear much about here in the West. Cameron, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Russia. My pleasure. Uh, let's start with your background. Uh, why don't you go ahead and tell us where you grew up, where you grew up, and um, and how this essay came to you. So I was born in Pakistan, and my father was in the Pakistani Foreign Service, uh, which is why uh, I came to the United States at a very young age. Uh, I was a little over three, stayed here for about eight years, and then um, my father went back to headquarters in Islamabad and uh, spent a couple of years there. Uh, then we... Um, were moved to India. My father was posted there for five years. And um, after those five years, we uh, came back to, uh, to home, to, to Pakistan. Um, and then I spent about four years before I came back to the United States to go to school. And since then, I've been between the U.S. and Canada. Um, I'm talking since 1990. Um, so, I mean, this piece is uh, both sort of my intellectual curiosity as, as, as someone who has done academic study on uh, Muslim politics and uh, someone who's worked on this professionally for a very long time, but also things that I saw myself, uh, things that I grew up listening and then learning and, and then just watching unfold in front of me. Um, I was, uh, 12, uh, or 11, uh, you know, when the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan took place, um, and, and things seemed to accelerate, uh, after that, um, and, and on all of that, I was in South Asia at the time, uh, you know, between Pakistan and India, and I, being someone who at a very young age, uh, you know, people played sports. I did that, but I was also very curious about geopolitics. Of course, I didn't know the word back then. I was too young. And um, the, the, this was the event of the, uh, of the time, you know, the 10-year war to, to oust the Soviet Union uh, from Afghanistan and the mobilization of Islamist militiamen uh, from all over the world, uh, including the Arab Middle East. And, uh, but, but, you know, Diobandism and, 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 and this movement uh, was basically all over this landscape, all over this, uh, you know, militant landscape, uh, all over the Pakistani political landscape and, 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 and society. It was emerging. And so... You know, in, in recent years, when it became uh, clear that the Taliban, which is probably the most uh, potent Deobandi movement in that region, uh, when it became clear that uh, 
they are not going to be defeated by the U.S.-backed government. I began to wonder, you know, about this entire time period. I, I went back, essentially, and I said, oh, my God, you know, in my lifetime, this thing started as a very little movement on the fringes of society um, trying to, you know, heavily influence politics and religion and 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 uh, it became you know militarized and and and, and became a, a a radical militant movement with so many different manifestations but i was just uh you know um amazed at how quickly within my lifetime uh it, it became so big and to where it's now shaping the destiny of that region yeah, you know, one of the most fascinating things that I learned from reading your essay is that uh, Diobandism and Wahhabism start off, they both belong to the Sunni tradition, but, but uh, they start off on sort of the opposite ends of the spectrum within the Sunni tradition. Uh, you know, there are four schools of jurisprudence in Sunni uh, Islam, and um, Diobandism started off from the Hanafi tradition, Wahhabism from the Hanbali tradition, which is the most puritanical, um, the Hanafi being perhaps the most, um, you know, open to new ideas. Yet they somehow meet, not even in the middle, they meet on the, you know, closest to Wahhabism and they see eye to eye on so many issues. Tell us about that. Yes, it's, you know, in, in, in obviously there was a lot of situational awareness that I had accumulated over the decades about this phenomenon. I wrote a book on political Islam back in 2013. I did my dissertation uh, looking at ideological and behavioral transformation um, uh, for my PhD on both Salafis and Jihadis, and I looked at uh, the Taliban in particular. But, you know, it, for this piece, I did have to go back and, uh, to, and sort of fill in the blanks or the gaps in my own understanding. And what I realized, you know, I, it made sense that there is some intellectual overlap. And it was fascinating to see two different movements in two different geographies doing kind of the same thing. And then there were all sorts of theories that percolate, have percolated, especially since 9-11, uh, about the origins. But it was really interesting to, to learn that um, essentially the two principal or chief theoreticians uh, for both Wahhabism, meaning Muhammad bin Abdul Wahhab, uh, and a man by the name of Shah Waliullah Dehlavi, uh, who essentially is the intellectual forerunner of Deobandism, that they actually spent a lot of time together studying in Medina in, in uh, the early 1700s. They were actually born in the same year, 1703. Um, Muhammad bin Abdul Wahab died much sooner than Dehlavi, uh, but uh, they pretty much went to seminary school in Medina, studying from some of the same, uh, you know, uh, ulama or, or the religious scholars uh, in the seminary, and where they are at around the same time exposed to the ideas of the 14th century Levantine uh, scholar by the uh, name of Ibn Taymiyyah, who is considered sort of 
the uh, who this both you know the Wahhabis in particular, uh, but also you know the Deobandis, they look back and they consider him as a, uh, a as a figure that is that they look upon for guidance and whatnot uh, from that time period, from the late 13th and early 14th century. So it's it's really fascinating where um, in 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 Medina you have these two individuals who are from different backgrounds. One is from India, the other is from Arabia. Uh, yet they study under uh, the same scholar uh, and his student. is actually the, the the lead scholar is actually from India, uh, and and so uh, the one who taught both these gentlemen and expose them to Ibn Taymiyyah and emphasize sort of a literal attitude towards the the hadith of the prophet and and really emphasizing that you know as muslims and if muslims are going to revive themselves then they need to go back to the uh, the sayings and uh, the uh, actions of the prophet as were documented by uh, the the um, those who did work on hadith uh, and, and many of the big muhaddith muhaddithin of of uh, you know the ages like bukhari and muslim and so it's very fascinating to see that both gentlemen get these ideas uh, or, or are exposed to this idea that hadith and that's where your focus should be as opposed to rationality uh, and and that's where this puritanical uh, if you will inspiration comes from where they say look you know there are a lot of things that are quote-unquote alien to islam that have entered the islamic thought and practice that need to be expunged and you see these guys uh go off you know after their studies into their respective geographical uh you know areas and 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 they and they form movements and you know you want you ask yourself well, you know, that's quite the coincidence that they have created similar movements in so, you know, uh, diverse locales. You know, in India has its dynamics and Arabia has its dynamics and they're not the same. And, you know, the languages are different. The cultures are different, but you have pretty much the same ideas. Yeah, no, it's very interesting. So, so they went to school together in Medina. So this is, we're talking about Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab, the founder of Wahhabism. And Shah Waliullah Dalhabi, is that, uh, and uh, correct me if I'm wrong, and he's uh, one, one of the main founders of Diobandism, or would you say the founder of Diobandism? Well, the, the, the founders come much later, but he is the inspiration for a uh a for the founders the founders are uh muhammad qasim nanotovi and uh ahmad rashid gangohi these okay. are two gentlemen who who sort of uh come to the scene around the mid 1800s uh, okay the, well, well we'll we'll get to those but I, I do i do want to hover over this point because it really is fascinating so shah waliullah dalhavi basically the uh, the person who gave birth to the Diobandism thought, um, he goes to school with Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab, the founder of Wahhabism. They go to school together in Medina. They have the same teachers. Um, they're both influenced by Ibn Taymiyyah, um, one of the older uh, uh, Islamic uh, thinkers who's 
you know, also a puritanical thinker. Um, do you know if they stayed in touch after that? Were they friends or did they just happen to fall under similar influences? So that's one of the questions that, you know, the scholars who look on uh, or study this far more deeply than I do, um, they're still trying to figure out. Uh, there is, at present, there is no evidence, at least not that I've come across, uh, that suggests that they, uh, you know, were acquaintances or, you know, they were classmates in, in the conventional sense. All we know is that they were in the same space, in the same city, in the same circles. So one has to extrapolate and say, it is quite possible that they ran into each other. The conventional wisdom is that, and which is something that, you know, um, many of us believe for a very long time, is that it was Muhammad bin Abdul Wahhab who influenced Shah Waliullah Delawi and uh, or his the ideas of the former uh, influenced the latter, and that's how Wahhabism came about, or you know the the the, the Sunni community uh, became sort of uh, puritanical in India because of this influx of ideas. But the research that I've done suggests that uh, not only was Muhammad bin Abdul Wahhab himself influenced by. Uh, an Indian scholar uh, who was a teacher to both the Hilawi and Muhammad bin Abdul Wahab, who exposed them, in, you know, to the writings and the teachings of Ibn Taymiyyah through his library. Uh, but there is no evidence that they, that we can say that hey, they knew each other or they hung out or they exchanged ideas. Uh, I would not go beyond saying that they actually just drank from the same intellectual fountains. Yeah. And that, that could be anything. Yeah, very interesting indeed. Um, so, okay, so it seems that Diobandism has gone through different phases of growth and influence since that time period. Um, and I would say, you know, specifically with its influence outside the state-appointed ulama or the learned clergy, the, the men, and they're almost always men who are in charge of religious affairs appointed by the state in India. Um, and it seems that during those final years or maybe final decades of um, British rule, Diobandism started to evolve alongside some political and nationalist movements like the push for independence, fostering Muslim-Hindu alliances against the British, um, even you know, getting the attention of Mahatma Gandhi. Uh, tell us more about that period and about the role of Diobandism in the separatist movement and the creation of Pakistan. Yeah, no, I, I think that it's important to understand the context in which the formal movement of Deobandism began in 1866 when uh, its two principal founders, Muhammad um, Qasim uh, Nanotavi and Ahmad Rashid Gangohi, they founded a Darul Ulum, uh, a, a seminary um, in Deoband. So the name Deobandi is not religious, uh, it is geospatial in nature, it's the name of the city. And so it was called Darul Ulum Deoband because it was founded in Deoband. 
But these people were inspired by a long tradition of ideas. Uh, and they actually uh, go back to uh, the father of Shah Waliullah Dehlavi. His name was Shah Abdul Rahim. And he was a, a top cleric in the, uh, in the royal court of uh, the last major Mughal emperor, the, the, the empire, the Muslim empire that uh, ruled India prior to the British takeover. And he helped Aurangzeb, uh, the, uh, the, the, the last effective ruler of the Mughal empire, uh, basically theocratize the empire. And, and so, and then he, he goes on to uh, establishing a school and it's the family. It's a multi-generational movement where first Shah Abdul Rahim and then Shah Waliullah Dehlavi does the big heavy lifting in terms of formulating the ideas. And then his son, Shah Abdul Aziz, and then a grandson, a great-grandson uh, by the name of Muhammad Ishaq, they, this, is the, this is the familial lineage that stretches all the way and touches the founders of Deobandism both Nanotavi and Gangohi. Uh, the disciples of uh, Muhammad Ishaq are the teachers of uh, the founders of Deobandism. So they, and, and, the, and if you look at the, the literature and, and their own writings and sayings, they pay homage to this tradition. So this is the tradition that comes in. And before they founded uh, the, the school, they actually tried their hand on armed insurrection because they were in the middle of the 1857 War of Independence in which Hindus and Sikhs and Muslims all banded together against, uh, with, under the banner of the last Mughal emperor, uh, Bahadur Shah Zafar. And they tried their last effort to fight the British and prevent the British takeover of all of India. They obviously failed. And so both the founders of Dawabandiism, uh, the two, the pair that founded the school, they fought in that, and they actually established a small city-state in a small area next to Delhi, but obviously they couldn't sustain that. And it's the failure then that says, okay, we're going to, the, the, uh, the, the way forward is no longer, you know, we don't have the military capability to fight the British, but what we need to do is first revive uh, the Muslim community. And for for the better part of the late 1800s, they focus on that. It's not until the 1900s, the early 1900s, and the second generation leader, um, uh, Mahmoud Hassan, uh, who takes over from the founders as the leader of the school and the movement, that they begin to sort of delve into mainstream nationalist politics and this call for Hindu-Muslim unity and, uh, you know, basically finding a way to mobilize mass support to gain independence from India. So it's fascinating to see that on one hand, they're running a very puritanical movement based out of a seminary. Uh, and, and that seminary has then sort of uh, given way to other satellite campuses around India, you know, in other seminaries who follow the same curriculum and, and the same ideology. And that's how it's spreading geographically. And at the same time, they're working with the Indian National Congress, which is the big nationalist movement, uh, soon to be led by Mahatma Gandhi. And, and, and while they're doing this, they have another go at insurrection. Uh, and they go back to Saudi Arabia and, and, and try to 
foment this insurrection with support from Russia uh, and Germany and the Afghan monarchy, as uh, as well as Turkey, Ottoman Turkey at the time. And it's very interesting that the leader of the the, the Oban is in Hejaz in 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 Mecca, and he is arrested there by the forces of Sharif Hussein, who had rebelled against the Ottoman Empire, and is handed over to the British. And he's then the leader of Mahmoud Hassan, who is the leader of the Oban now, uh, is imprisoned for four years in Malta, uh, along with his d- deputy. Uh, and But the movement continues in India to the point that the movement now creates a formal political wing called Jamiat Ulamai Hind, and J-U-H, and they're really actively involved with INC. And by the time Mahmoud Hassan is released and he returns to, to, to Bombay, uh, Mahatma Gandhi uh, is, is going there to meet him and, and, and receive him uh, you know, at the dockyards because he traveled by ship. And from then on, they join forces in fomenting this uh, unrest against the British demanding for uh, more self-rule and eventually independence. Fascinating. When would you say the movement, or the Diobandis, or Diobandism as a, as a movement of thought uh, started to come up against some schisms or, um, you know, or just sort of major conflict in thought, say, with uh, secularists, with the Islamist modernist movements, and even with the tradition to which your family belongs, the, you know, Sufi-inclined Islam, and uh, correct me if I'm uh, mispronouncing it, the Barilvis, the Barilvis? Yes. That is correct, the the Barilvis. So, so this is, you're right, I mean, these are all the forces that are putting pressure on Deobandiism as it's growing. And so there are multiple streams of thought and there are multiple movements operating in the same space at the same time. And there is the modernist movement. uh, There's the Barelwis, though they're not very well organized, but they're forming resistance, religious resistance. They're, They're operating at a sectarian level. Uh, but I think that the schism really happens when, uh, when basically uh, Congress uh, essentially issues a report and, and a blueprint on how to do self-governance. And in that, uh, they sort of really go for a secular state that doesn't offer any special dispensation to Muslims. Uh, which was the demand of uh, the Deobandis under the banner of Jamiat Ulamai Hind. And that's when, by this time, the demand, the modernists, the Muslim modernists under the Muslim League, led by the uh, founder of Pakistan, the fut- at the time future founder of Pakistan, Muhammad Ali Jinnah, uh, they, um, they have created this idea of separatism that because we're Muslims, we can't live in a same country uh, once the British leave. We need to have our own country because we're Muslims, we're different, and we need to be, uh, we need to have our own uh, state, if you will, which is separate from 
the one dominated by the Hindu majority in India. And that idea is sort of prevails, and it infects the Obandiism be, partly because the Deobandis failed uh, to uh, get the concessions that they thought through the Hindu-Muslim unity route. And, and, and because this was a puritanical movement, there had to be tensions all along as the movement was, you know, in this big uh, push for Hindu-Muslim unity. At the same time, you're preaching a very puritanical view of Islam that's in conflict with your political mission. So therefore, uh, it was only a matter of time. And then on top of that, you have calls for Muslim separatism. So that's when the Diobandis fracture and and... And then the Brailwis, while not nowhere near as organized as the Deobandis, so, so this they is, were still... Sorry, just, just, just to interject for a second. So this is what year you're bringing us up to? I'm talking about the early 40s, 1940s. Um, and, and, okay, and, and, and by, the, by which time, uh, you know, it's becoming increasingly clear that the, uh, the, the British will have to partition uh, India. Uh, now, it wasn't clear whether it would be partitioned, uh, you know, as two autonomous units within, you know, a federal structure or whether we we're going for two sovereign states. That wasn't clear until, like, say, the summer of 46. But by the summer of 45, it was very clear that uh, the, uh, the old Deobandi idea of Hindu-Muslim unity wasn't going anywhere. So there was a rebellion within uh, Deobandi, uh, within Jamiat ulama Hind, the political vehicle of the Deobandi movement. And uh, uh, two figures uh, basically lead this charge, uh, Ashraf Ali Tanwi and Shabir Ahmad Usmani. They basically rebel against their leader, Hussein Ahmad Madani, who's been pushing for this composite nationalism, Hindu-Muslim unity, and we just want a united India once the British leave. So that idea is that loses support from within the Deobandi movement, particularly its political vehicle. And they split and they form Jamiat Ulama Islam, a separate faction that then supports the Muslim League and Jinnah for the creation of Pakistan. So that's when this is the first major schism within the Deobandi uh, school of thought, and the, the, the JUI is is founded literally in two years before the creation of Pakistan, and uh, the, its founders, Usmani and, and Tanwi, they they were um, they thought that the creation of a Muslim state uh, was a better way for their Deobandi movement to achieve its ideals of an Islamic state as opposed to staying with, you know, uh, in a secular state united with, you know, the Hindu majority. And so they, they, they jump onto the Pakistan bandwagon. And as soon as Pakistan is created, uh, you see Shabir Ahmad Usmani becoming part of the assembly, the, the, the first parliament of, of the country designed to create the new constitution. And he goes, he dives right in hard to try and Islamize this constitution because it was founded not as an Islamic state, but as a secular state. And so that's where you see the shift of, you know, the, the center of gravity of Deobandiism, whilst religiously speaking, the bulk of Deobandiism 
still is in India uh, because there's the, you know, a great many Muslims don't leave India for Pakistan. Deoband exists physically in India, the mothership of the movement where the big seminary is. And, but this group, this, this splinter group is succeeds in sort of taking, you know, seizing the center of gravity because now you have a Muslim state that they want to Islamize and that's where their focus is uh, for the better part of, I would say, the next uh, 25 to 30 years. Okay. Yeah, very interesting. This actually brings me to my next question. Um, tell us about, you know, I want to move forward now to the 1970s and Afghanistan. Okay, so the mobilization of Muslims in the war against the Soviets. Tell us about their role, the role of the Diobandis uh, in that war against the 70s, uh, I'm sorry, against the Soviets, and uh, their role in relation to the Taliban. And to get us to this point, just give us briefly, uh, you know, the role they played in Pakistan and India in the years leading up from, you know, from the time of independence and separation to the sort of uh, war in Afghanistan against the Soviets. So, uh, you know, the original group called JUH, the Jamiatulamai Hind, it remains in India till this day. Um, it's just a, a religious organization uh, that is looking after the interests of, um, or it seeks to look after the interests of the Muslim minority there. But as I said earlier, that JUI, its splinter group, becomes the main, you know, the main uh, vehicle through which Deobandism, you know, moves on to the next stage of trying to Islamize Pakistan. And at one point, I would say between uh, 1962 and 1977, um, it, under the leadership of a man by the name of Mufti Mahmoud, JUI actually goes from being a religious movement trying to influence politics to becoming a full-fledged political party unto itself. And there you see them running for elections, winning elections at the provincial level, taking over Mufti Mahmoud, the leader of JUI, becomes the chief minister of the biggest Pashtun province, the, the big Pashtun province in Pakistan, formerly known as the Northwest Frontier Province, and anymore it's called Khaybar Pakhtunkhwa. And so this is sort of, they're, they're making waves because the atmosphere is one in which uh, the military rule has failed in the 60s, and uh, there is this push for democracy. And then East Pakistan had seceded uh, to become Bangladesh, so that was a big loss for the country. And this is a sort of a transitional period in which the Deobandis are becoming real mainstream political players. Um, and But in 1977, this entire process comes to an end because of another military coup led by General Zia, uh, who is an Islamist-minded general. Uh, but first and foremost, he wants to reestablish the military's domination over the state and reverse any civilianization and constitutionalism that has occurred. Uh, and what he does is very fascinating. He basically uh, hijacks the Deobandi business model, the entire ideology of Deobandiism, and 
by the time the Soviets invade Afghanistan, uh, the Deobandis are also going through another uh, leadership change. Mufti Mahmoud, or the one responsible for creating JUI as a political party, dies of a heart attack. And this is General Zia's time. And there, the Deobandis are already divided amongst themselves between whether to, you know, in their opposition for, uh, you know, military dictatorship, while at the same time they're being attracted to this idea that here's a general uh, who's actually going, to, believes in our ideology, and this could benefit the movement. So there's divisions within JUI, and you see that after Mahmoud's death, the the faction, the, the original faction, or the mothership of the movement is taken over by uh, Mahmoud's son, Fazlur Rahman, but there's a sizable faction of clerics who uh, basically oppose this hereditary transfer of leadership, and they form their own faction, and they're more closer to General Zia, and their leader, Samuel Haq, uh, is the one who, whose father established a, another seminary that became very notorious over uh, you know, the, the, the next few decades for producing the Islamist insurgents and a great many of the Taliban. Uh, this is where the name Haqqani comes from, of the Haqqani network within the Taliban, because not that they're a tribe or anything, they are Haqqani because they went to Dar al-Ulum Haqqaniya, which is on the Afghanistan-Pakistan border, and is run by Samuel Haq, who's the leader of JUI, the splinter faction, and siding with the military leader. And uh, essentially, this is the beginning of the militarization or the, the, the radicalization of the, the Deobandis. Uh, and, and you see the rise of, uh, you know, because you're sending people as volunteers, young people who studied in seminaries, and, and even in, you know, urban, uh, you know, Western uh, uh, curriculum, uh, educational institutions, such as mainstream universities, you know, there's a, a legion of people are being sent to fight the Soviets. And they're all being sort of propelled uh, by, you know, this Deobandi ideas. And uh, because General Zia, the military dictator, has essentially appropriated the whole project of the Deobandis. And, and, and therefore, you see the, the rise of these militant factions. And at this time, you also have the revolution in Iran, and you see the, you know, the vocal minority of, of, of Shia in Pakistan uh, also mobilizing, leading to sectarian tensions. And you see the rise of, and this, is, this predates ISIS uh, by decades. You know, in the 1980s, you had ISIS-like entities with visceral hatred towards the Shia minority, uh, in, and they're all motivated by, you know, this radicalized view of Deobandiism and going out and attacking the Shiites uh, and wanting to have the state declare them as non-Muslims. And you see factions, Deobandi factions moving into that direction, anti-Shia militancy. You have Deobandi factions fighting the Soviets in Afghanistan. And by the 1990s, you, when, you know, the Soviets have left, and, you, and, and those who fought the Soviets then fought with themselves, and there was an intra-Islamist civil war, you see the rise of the Taliban, and that's sort of the, if you will, uh, the maturation 
of Deobandi militancy, that de militant Deobandi ideology in the form of the Afghan Taliban. And then, you know, there's an uprising in India at the same time, and the Pakistani state is redirecting a lot of these Deobandi militiamen towards that project. And you see the rise of new groups towards in the mid-90s and the late 90s uh, that are Deobandi in nature, but they have different names. So now you have almost a dozen groups that are Deobandi and militant, some of them fighting in Kashmir and against India, uh, many of them now allied with the Taliban who have taken over, uh, you know, in Kabul in 1996. And this is sort of, and Al-Qaeda by now is in the mix as well in Afghanistan. So you see Deobandiism and that Salafism that began together uh, once again in the same sort of battle face and, and, and shaping each other's ideas. And this is by now, we're now, and, and that leads to the 9-11 attacks. And then the rest is sort of history, as they say. Yeah, actually fascinating. Um, you know, I'm just really curious, how would you articulate the influence of Diobendism uh, uh, ideas on the Taliban vis-a-vis -vis the influence of Wahhabi ideas on the Taliban? Or would you say the two sort of fused, or the three, fused together to form, you know, their own sort of uh, universe of thought, so to speak. And also, uh, why have we not heard of Diobandism in the West? Certainly not as much as Wahhabism and certainly not as much, I mean, we all know, you know, we, we hear about the role of Pakistan uh in the taliban uh insurgency and whatever but we we don't really hear about diobandism so i'm sorry i folded two three questions together in there but please go ahead no it's all good they're all related um so yeah i mean look the reason why in the west um we didn't hear so much about diobandism um is because of 9-11 9-11 was not the work of the taliban 9-11 was the work of Al-Qaeda, and people tried to understand what is the ideology of Al-Qaeda. And, you know, initially it was, oh, these people are Salafi, they believe in the same ideas as the Saudi state and what's being taught in Saudi schools. Uh, then, you know, the, that sort of thinking evolved over, you know, in the early 2000s and said, no, this is actually not the Salafism of the Saudi state. This is Salafi jihadism. And the debate went on and on, and the focus remained on uh, Al-Qaeda until ISIS came, and, but it was also uh, part of this Salafi jihadi thought process. So in the West, uh, while we were, you know, and this is sort of interesting in the sense that we were fighting the Taliban for nearly two decades, and yet we did not... Uh, pay so much attention to the ideology of the Taliban because somehow the focus was, the big thing was this transnational ideology of ISIS and Al-Qaeda before it and this idea that's all Salafi jihadism. And, you know, what I, what we used to talk about is some, uh, there, was a, there were a lot of people who said, well, you know what, the Taliban are not really Salafi jihadi, they're Deobandi, and somehow because... 
you know, first the Afghan war against the Soviets, then bin Laden relocating al-Qaeda from Sudan to Afghanistan in the mid-90s when the Taliban formed their emirate. And that sort of led to sort of like a crude cross-pollination. People really didn't understand uh, this, uh, how this, uh, uh, if you will, uh, these two movements, the Deobandism and, Sal- and Salafism, and, 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 and of course, you know, the, the Salafi jihadism and the Deobandi jihadism, they're all sort of go back to uh, the, the 18th century, uh, which is where we began our conversation, Russia. And so that never really made it to sort of the conversation, uh, even in the informed circles, uh, because we sort of try to we've tried to package things in neat categories, and somehow the the idea that Diobandiism isn't very different from Wahhabism, uh, you know, really didn't allow us to understand how you know Wahhabism isn't something that was imported from the Arab world uh over time uh, to south asia uh deobandism is the local wahhabism uh of south asia and and of course there were scholars there were academic scholars who used to talk about it but in the in the public discourse in the media in the think tank space in the analysis space this really didn't get the attention that it really deserved and and I'm glad that we're talking about it at New Lines, and you know I got the opportunity to write this piece, and we're having this conversation, because uh, you know the Obandiism is, while as you correctly stated, you know they're they're not from the same school of jurisprudence, school of law as the Wahhabis are. They're you know they believe in the Hanbali school, the Wahhabis, and these are still Hanafis. But it's very fascinating that despite being from so diverse medieval schools of thought as far as Islamic law is concerned, there's so many similarities. And then even theology uh, is very, very different. Uh, you know, they, uh, the, 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 the Taliban and the Deobandis, from a theological point of view, follow the school of thought of Abu Mansur al-Maturidi, a Central Asian scholar, who was, uh, uh, you know, the the counterpart of Abu Hassan al-Ashari, uh, which is the the Ashari doctrine of theology is popular in the Arab world, particularly in Egypt. Uh, so even doctrinally, you know, from at a theological level, at a jurisprudential level, there's there these two groups, the Wahhabis and the Deobandis, are are different, yet they have so many similar ideas, and they are the movements. The the political movement, the political project is the same, and although you know the Diobandis tried their hand in mainstream constitutional and democratic politics, uh, because there was an opportunity first under the British, and then you know in the early years of the formation of Pakistan, uh, which wasn't the case in Arabia, because you know the Arab the Wahhabism began with the consolidation of uh, of an emirate that became a monarchy under the leadership of uh, you know Ali Saud the, the the house of saud that continues to rule saudi arabia till this day so those are the different contexts but in the the end product the end goal and the and many of the ideas are so similar because of where they began 
because of the starting point uh, and 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 the I, and then the the contemporary 20th century phenomenon of non-state actors rebelling against you know Muslim states using jihad to try to establish uh, what they call as you know an Islamic polity. Yeah, very interesting. Um, so okay, so Diobandism is the Wahhabism of South Asia. So Wahhabism in the Arab world, Diobandism in South Asia. In the Arab world, we're seeing a lot of shifts uh, with you know with the role of religion in society, and certainly a lot of shifts with Wahhabism in Saudi Arabia. We're not going to get into that. That's not really the subject of this episode. But I would love to hear your thoughts on where you see Diobandism going uh, in South Asia, in Pakistan and India, and its influence uh, on the Taliban in Afghanistan, in what can we expect in the sort of near future? So now that is the million dollar question and, and sort of everybody's trying to sort of grapple with it. And so, so in order to understand this, we have to understand that the Taliban are probably the most vibrant subset of the broader Diobandi phenomenon, which exists in the form of seminaries, uh, religious groups, political groups, different factions. Uh, but the Taliban are seen as sort of the most vibrant of all of those groups, and it sees itself as the vanguard of, of Diobandiism. And even if if it just wants to limit itself to ruling Afghanistan, uh, it has so many counterparts in Pakistan and even in India that there is a great probability in all likelihood a lot of people are going to be inspired by this. And, uh, and they're going to say, well, okay. I mean, already the Pakistani Taliban movement uh, is saying, well, if the Afghan Taliban can have their emirate and they were successful in forcing the United States to withdraw after a 20-year uh, military occupation, then uh, we should do the same in Pakistan. And we have, we're not faced with the same challenges because we're facing a weak Pakistani state. So how can we have another emirate, uh, you know, in Pakistan. Uh, and that's the, that's the goal of the Pakistani Taliban rebels who go by the acronym of TTP, Tariqa Taliban Pakistan. And so there's, and then this is sort of the, the Pakistani version of the Afghan Taliban. But then there are broader political groups. So the JUI still exists. It's a big group and they're, they're, you know, it has its splinter factions. And then there is a broader pool of network of madaris, seminaries, that are, have, are not really part of the rebel movement or even the political nonviolent movement. They're, they're part of the social fabric of Diobandiism. It's that wider, broader pool in which all these others are subsets. So there's a lot of, this is a fluidic battle space across, you know, the, the, the Afghanistan-Pakistan landscape. And there's no way you can just sort of confine this there. So we're going to look at real, we're really looking at instability and growing insecurity in Pakistan, especially 
all of this comes at a time when Pakistan is at its lowest in terms of, you know, uh, its uh, economic problems and its social problems and political problems, and the state is weak. So the big question is, can the Pakistani state stem this tide? And what is worse, and this is something I, I mentioned and allude to in sort of the, the closing sentences of the essay, is that uh, even the Barelwis, who still continue to be the majority uh, sect in, Sunni sect in Pakistan, they've become radicalized. They've taken up, they now own this whole mantra of fighting blasphemy uh, and protecting the honor of the, the prophet, especially after the French cartoon saga and everything. And so it's not just the Deobandis who are the radical elements. They exist, but they've contaminated even Barelwi thought. And the Barelwis have gone from being, you know, spiritual Sufi-oriented uh, people to being not just politicized, but really radically politicized. And they have a movement which goes by the acronym of TLP. And they are... They are a big challenge as well for the Pakistani state. And then if you cross over to into India, uh, given the way that the current government of India, Prime Minister Narendra Modi and his ruling BJP party, which is a right-wing Hindu nationalist party, its wider social pool is made up of Hindu extremist organizations who want, you know, sort of like a Hindu state in India and are undermining the secular fabric of that. And there are 200 million uh, you know, Muslims in that country that they are targeting, uh, you know, as part of sort of their ideological campaign, and we haven't, we have to, we can't forget that Deobandism is is still a very large presence in India as well. Although they're not political, they're a religious movement. But if the minority community of Muslims in India becomes threatened, then you can, yeah, and then you you have you know the Taliban forming their emirate in Afghanistan and 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 they're sort of threatening to take you know to to have a big role in Pakistan then you know these ideas don't remain confined so my worry is that with this sort of radicalization across the region and this is the planet's most heavily populated area this is the most densely populated area of the world and so we're looking at a potential crisis across the region. And we haven't even talked about Bangladesh that has its own Deobandi movement um, and, and is affected by whatever happens in India and the wider region. So I hate to you know, end this thing on a, on a, on a sort of a pessimistic note, uh, but you know, that is where we are right now, where you know, if, the, if, if these radical tendencies are somehow not curbed, then these this could become a, a regional phenomenon and it'll pale in comparison to what we saw in Iraq and Syria uh, with ISIS. Yeah, well, uh, delicate times indeed. Uh, we'll certainly be watching closely, all of us at New Lines Magazine and at the Institute. Cameron Bukhari, thank you so much for joining us today. It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. I'm your host, Rasha Elas. You've been listening to New Lines Podcast. Don't forget to join us again next time for a brand new discussion.